0: Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Property and Freedom, Part One. Recorded in 1993, Ronald W. Jones, Xerox Professor of Economics at the University of Rochester, and Richard Pipes, Professor Emeritus at Harvard University, discuss property rights, ownership, and responsibilities. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.
1: Dr. Pintz, it's a pleasure being here today and being able to chat with you. I understand that uh, you have just finished another book on uh, property and freedom. Your background is quite different from my own. You come at this from an historian's point of view. As an economist, uh, I've been familiar with, and my colleagues have as well, the concept of property rights and their importance in economic development. And as we discuss these matters, one of the things I'm curious about is the difference in the way in which you might relate to the concept of property rights in the way economists would.
0: Well, you're quite right. There are a number of books, particularly in the last few years, that have appeared that stress how important property rights are for economic growth. I came to, to this subject by way of Russian history. Yes. And 25 years ago, I published a book called Russia of the Old Regime and It is essentially an essay on the development of a political system in Tsarist Russia, beginning with the origins of the Russian state 700 years ago. And I wondered, while writing this book, what it was that um, Russia, which was a Christian and therefore European country, and lying right next to Europe, never developed the kind of democratic institutions and civil society and rule of law that was common in, in Western Europe. And that even, why, e- why even in the 17th century, when you had the height of royal absolutism in Russia, you never reached quite the same dimensions that it did in Russia. Yeah. From the travelers, European travelers going to Russia uh, were always astonished by the power of the Russian Tsar. Uh, and I decided then that, in fact, it was the absence uh, of very late development of private property and land in Russia, land being the main source of wealth. Uh, European kings did not own the entire land. They owned some land but they didn't own all of it, and they always needed money, so they had to convoke parliaments. The Russian Tsars, until the late 18th century, uh, owned the whole land, and uh, there was no private property in land. Therefore, they had no need to do this. They had no need to grant people any political or civil rights. Well, I I wrote a number of books about Russia since then, but then when I finished my latest books on Russian Revolution, I decided to test this theory, and and this book is the product of it.
1: So that uh, the... Idea of relating the importance of property rights in the development process uh, struck you. I'm sure that with the development in the eastern half of Europe, Russia, versus the western half, diverging as yes. as they did in the 19th century and perhaps earlier.
0: Well, much earlier. It goes earlier. back uh, really to the Middle Ages.
1: Right. Yeah. So, did you sort of conclude that? property rights and the difference in property rights was a key element, if not the key.
0: Yes, I I concluded that um, uh, property rights, in whatever happens to be the main source of wealth at a given time, uh, is uh, a necessary but not sufficient uh, factor in development of freedom and rule of law. It's not sufficient, because you can combine you can have tyranny with private property. I mean, right. uh, Nazi Germany is a good example of right. that. Although property in Nazi Germany is highly controlled by the state, still it existed. But I don't know of any examples of democratic states, truly democratic states with rule of law and civil rights, where you don't have private property. Because what happens if you own, particularly in early societies when all these institutions were developed, if, cit- if citizens or subjects of kings owned land, they became co-sovereigns, as it were, and right. in the 17th century, this was very evident. These people who were running the gentry, people who run the House of Commons, thought of themselves as co-sovereigns uh, because they owned a large part of the land. Now, this was not the case in a country like Russia and in other so-called Oriental despotisms.
1: Well, uh, one question I think that comes up is how evident would it have been to rulers, let's say, in Russia, that perhaps instituting some property rights might end up in their benefit by uh, stimulating greater, greater growth. Was this connection made in such a way that one might have expected endogenously that property rights would have been established?
0: That indeed happened, but for the first time under Catherine the Great. Yes. And Catherine the Great was a German. She was very familiar with European literature. She read The Physiocrats. And they impressed on her the notion that uh, private ownership leads to increased productivity. And in various drafts of her notes and so on, she even talked about the need to give the peasants a stake in the land so they'll be more productive, because they were serfs then, serfs either of private landowners or of the state. Um, And she even had a notion that uh, all newly born serfs or children of serfs would be free and have access to private land. But she never followed through because she was very insecure on her throne. There had been a major peasant rebellion in her, in her reign. And she did, relied very heavily on the gentry, the land-owning, not land-owning, but land-tenuring gentry right. to keep order. So she didn't follow through. But she was aware of it. And in the first half of the 19th century, before serfs were emancipated, this was quite commonly thought of. But it always came from Western sources. There's people yes. who read Western literature.
1: Well, I think in the light of more recent events, uh, one could turn to agriculture, and say that the difference in productivity with and without property rights should have been uh, evident, or eventually become evident. That that this is an area, an activity in which uh, these differences be quite pronounced.
0: No, she was quite conscious of that. She would, she wrote she quoted Montesquieu to the effect that a person who is Free and owns will work many, many more times more effectively than somebody who works for somebody else. But she had to balance uh, the interests of productivity against the of national security or right. royal security, and, she, and and security won out.
1: Yes, royal security.
0: Yeah, her security, the yes. security of the of the regime. Yeah, right, right. Later on, in the 19th century, the crown became ever more convinced that in fact. A land-owning peasantry is a stabilizing factor because they observed what happened in France after the revolution with the creation of land-owning peasantry and in the course of the 19th century gradually uh, the rights of peasants were increased the property rights were increased and in 1861 they were given their freedom and and property right. but that was done again from security reasons because in the 18th century or pre- previous to the 18th century Russian Tsars depended on the nobility with nobility to maintain them on the throne. And in the 19th century, they became convinced that they must need the support also of the peasants.
1: Now, one topic I think that your book does uh, deal with is the relationship between property rights and democracy, or the transition from a more... Uh, uh, from kingdoms, monarchies, etc., to more democratic rule. I wonder what your comments are on the relationship between democracy and property rights? I mean, one can have one without the other, perhaps.
0: Well, the fact is that we have the earliest example in antiquity of a democracy is Athens. Right. Athens is the first country in, in history which recognized outright ownership in land, certainly by the fifth century, where people could buy land, trade lands, sell land, and Athens was also the first democracy, and there's a very close connection between the two institutions and then in in Europe, the first democracy was England and here too, very close connection because the democracy of England grew by virtue of the fact that the House of Commons gradually absorbed powers of the king, and it could do so because every time the kings or the Queens needed money, they had to come to the House of Commons, and the House of Commons demanded gradually more and more rights, until by the end of the 17th century, after the Glorious Revolution, the whole center of power shifted to the House of Commons, to Parliament. And after that, essentially, England became a democracy.
1: Isn't it possible to argue that democracy in some ways could easily infringe upon property rights, in the Mm -hmm. sense that the notion of property rights... uh, seems to relate to an individual. And technically speaking, in democracy, if you get 51% or a group uh, majority, you might be able more effectively to take away from the individual and endanger those, those property rights. I think it is the case that a lot of people tend to think of freedom, political freedom, individual freedom, and property rights as not only consistent with, but almost the same thing as having a democratic form of government. And
0: well, you need not. You, you can, as I, said, as I said before, you can have property rights without freedom. I mean, uh, Pinochet's Chile is, is an example. Yes. Um, to some extent, today's Russia, Yeltsin's Russia or post-Yeltsin Russia, is an example. It is free in some extent, to some extent, but it's really not a democracy in any accepted sense. And yet, you have private property. So, um, private property does not automatically lead to democracy, um, but democracy is impossible without private property, that's how I would put it.
1: But I guess some would argue that democracy might open the door to uh, abridging individual property rights. Yeah, Yeah, you're quite right. Because it puts emphasis not on individual rights, responsibilities, and so forth, but on the wishes of a majority, yeah. and I think that in the U.S. Constitution, for example, the uh, the Bill of Rights are an important statement uh, about individuals as well as as, as states and what what uh, cannot be done yeah. to individuals, even with a majority uh, view.
0: That's right, and I, I stress this in my book and in my the last chapter of my book, which is very controversial yes. and many reviewers disliked it. Uh, I point out to the fact that the welfare state really steadily encroaches on property rights and in a sense, therefore, also on freedoms. For example, uh, various laws passed under the welfare state uh, abridge the freedom of contract. Right. Minimum wages, affirmative action, and so on. Um, Unfortunately, this is so. And it happens partly because, as you say, uh, a majority has an interest in that. Partly, uh, also, it happens because when uh, the infringements on property and liberty were done by kings, there was a kind of resistance to it, which melts away when it's done by the chosen representatives of the people. Uh, So it's very difficult to argue that uh, we are being deprived of our liberties when this deprivation is being done by people whom we have chosen to represent us. And, and that gets, well, I mean, logically you can yeah. make it, but psychologically it's much more difficult to do in the old days. Right. I, I mean, when uh, King uh, Charles I in England imposed ship money on towns lying inland, which was unprecedented, people rebelled. Not all the masses of people, but enough people rebelled, became an issue. Today, when various taxes are imposed, nobody rebels against it. It's just taken right. as, as a fact.
1: One of the uh, words that we hear a lot about especially in the U.S. today, in discussions of, of, of this type, is entitlement. Mm-hmm. We think uh, individuals think they have entitlements. Would you equate entitlements, would you think of them as a, as a property right?
0: No, I don't think so, though it's becoming that, in fact. Yes. Uh, uh, to me, uh, the, I, I follow Ayn Rand on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a very clear mind on these subjects. Uh, a right is only something that is common to all human beings. What is the right to life, a life to, uh, right to property, and so on and so forth, freedoms speech? They cost nothing. The moment uh, somebody asserts a right for which others, fellow citizens, have to pay for, I, it becomes maybe an entitlement, but it's not a right. Uh, and there we're getting into a very shady or shadowy zone of people claiming entitlements as their rights, which I don't think they have a right to do. Um, now, we may have a moral duty to support people to provide housing for them, but I don't think it's a legal duty or, a duty or a constitutional duty. Right. Yeah. No, I'm very dubious I, of that.
1: I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. And I think if one focuses on the abrogation of rights or on the limits to, let's say, economic freedom, to use another word for, for some of these things, um, I think that the... There's a tendency in uh, some countries, I think in the United States, to infringe increasingly on the liberties. That is, restrictions are placed on what mm-hmm. you're allowed to do. What I have in mind particularly has to do with environmental yes. issues. The, uh, for example, in the Endangered Species Act, mm-hmm. I think one of the uh, lessons that we may have learned from that is that the desire for a certain outcome, in this case, to preserve and protect endangered species, uh, if this leads to a direct set of orders about how to behave, can be counterproductive. Yes. And this, uh, uh, if, for example, a landholder finds uh, a species, uh, a member of a species, that's considered endangered, then limitations are put on what that yeah. individual can do. And that changes the value of the property, yeah. reduces it, but it also changes the incentives of the landlord.
0: You're quite right, and, and uh, you know, I'm not against environmental protection yeah. laws. I mean, it would be absurd to be against it. But it seems to me, first of all, that they go much too far sometimes. For example, wetlands, right. where enormous stretches of land have been declared wetlands and the people have lost great wealth. And secondly, that if a government, uh, local, state, or federal, um, infringes on uh, property rights of landowners, then you should compensate them for it, because this is a taking. Right. Isn't it? It's equivalent to eminent domain. But and, it doesn't But do it there.
1: leads, I think, sometimes to, to incentives that are very counterproductive. The so-called uh, uh, shoot, shovel, <laughs> and shut up policy. Uh, you find... Uh, a member of an endangered species, you know you're going to suffer financially if word gets out, where if you eradicate that agent, bury it, and keep quiet, then you'd be better off in terms of the value of your land, your ability to to do it. And I think this is an example of something that is more (coughs) widespread than that, namely that even with good intentions, a command type of regime, this is the result I want, so I will order that yeah. it, it happen, leads to a worse outcome than if you allow individuals uh, more freedom, more, uh, more property rights.
0: I, I think this is absolutely true, and I think we are beginning to realize it yeah. in the country. I mean, for some 50 or 60 years since the New Deal, the Supreme Court, in such cases, when this case came up before, it used to always uh, favor public good over private good. And for the past decade or so, there have been a number of uh, verdicts rendered by the Supreme Court which show that it is aware uh, of what this represents, what dangers it represents. Uh, so what one has to do, you know, one cannot say, yes, I don't want any uh, environmental laws, or environmental laws should take precedence over private rights, but be sensible about it. So. Do what needs to be done, and if it in fact infringes on private rights and it's necessary to infringe on private rights, on private rights uh, then uh, the thing to do is is to compensate the owner. Right. And I think I think more and more people are aware of it.
1: Well, one issue that came up in the set of conferences that the Fraser Institute uh, sponsored in the last uh, decade and a half on economic freedom um, has to do with the ways in which governmental activity can, perhaps indirectly, affect the value of property. Mm -hmm. So if you say, well, an individual has property rights in the sense that he can own the property, can exchange the property, can engage in in buying and, uh, and selling, something the government does, let's say, cuts the value of that property in half. Now, have property rights been infringed on them?
0: Well, I think definitely so. Well, you know, the people who support this kind of legislation argue that property is not one right, but a bundle of rights. And you can take out some particular rights out of it and still the owner has property rights. But I don't think this is true at all.
1: But then doesn't that lead to a situation in which individuals are insured against losses in value that are a result of changes in market conditions?
0: If if, if what happens?
1: If, If, let's say... Uh, Suppose you own uh, uh, some stock in General Motors, Mm -hmm. and suppose that the government tightens up on pollution standards, Mm -hmm. and suppose (coughs) GM stock goes down in value as a consequence.
0: Well, that would not bother me. I think the government has to do such things when it comes to really pollution, for example.
1: Well, that's because you favor the, the... the particular pollution measure yeah. but suppose it, it is less direct than that. Uh, the uh, uh, the government decides that we, in, in 1973 uh, that it will, um, well in that case it, uh, it, it, uh, the, the price of oil etc. went up but suppo- suppose it kept the price down it followed a policy of trying to insulate U.S. consumers from a rise in the price of oil because of events in the in the Middle East and mm-hmm. and the uh, the collusion that took place there. Would uh, one be able to argue that that government action altered your wealth because it changed the price, let's say, the value of
0: stock of, of oil or stocks. ownership? Uh, it's a very complicated yeah. issue. Uh, it seems to me that if I'm speaking in very general terms, that if the government can make a case for this really is, nation, is of, of great national interest, then I think they have a right to do that. If they do it whimsically uh, or do it on the basis of some theoretical considerations, then I think they do not. But, I mean, we all agree that uh, national interest and national security take precedence over private interests. Right. But one has to demonstrate that, in fact, this is the case.
1: Well, I'm trying to move away from situations where the government does something that uh, one might argue was important for the government to do that just in general give and take in the marketplace it might be technological uh... progress maybe something that sounds innocent or indeed beneficial to some as economists one thing we're aware of is the fact that almost any change that takes place will create losers as well as winners in the sense that relative prices change and that affects the value of property so that that the value of individuals' property are changing all the time, partly because of what government does, partly because of what other people do. uh, Yes, you're
0: you're, you're quite right, but I don't know how this problem can be resolved in a kind of a priori basis where you say, this must be done, it must not be done. This has to be studied case by case. And you say, yes, here the government is right. What it's doing is is for the benefit of society as a whole. No, here the government is overstepping the bounds of its authority. And in many cases, government is doing that. Right. I mean, uh, forfeitures right. involved particularly, the in, uh, fight against drugs, where the government confiscates private property uh, because it, the the w- the inanimate objects have been involved right. in a crime. Then I think is Ill- illegitimate. Right. So I think uh, you know, obviously, one has to deal with the case case by case. Yeah.
1: No, I think I raise this because I think it is a very difficult yeah, issue. Very and when difficult we problem. talked about this at our various. Conferences yeah. on economic freedom. I think we shied away from trying to give weight to changes in market prices that are a result of changes in demand supply yeah. uh, decisions, but rather concentrate on things like direct takings. Yeah. Uh, taxation regulations, the draft well, that 's what I think that it,
0: uh, affects most of us. That's right. uh, the others is sort of very hazy and very distant. I mean most of us investors don 't realize to what extent the price of our stock is affected by government action <laughs> right but I'm affected here. I own a house in what 's been declared a historic section of Cambridge uh, i I wanted recently to install a dish antenna, and it 's very clear I can do it. Yeah. The historical commission will let me do it, and I think this infringement of my freedom right.
1: I think that, uh, again, to uh, uh, rely on my profession, I think yep. one of the things economists stress about property rights is that they do, that uh, a scenario, and environment in which property rights are respected allows incentives for change, for technical progress, to capture some of these That's gains right. and leads to, to greater... Uh, a value of of output generally in individual values. And yet we realize also that in democratic states there's pressure for redistribution of some kind and that this challenges individuals' property rights.
0: Yeah, In general, as I say in the concluding section of my book, uh, the real threat to freedom in the modern democratic society is not tyranny, despotism, dictatorship, but the striving for equality. Okay. And not only an equality uh, of opportunity or equality before the law, which of course is to be taken for granted, but uh, equality of reward. When President Johnson, uh, introducing uh, his uh, legislation, argued that equality of opportunity is not enough, that what we must right. have is equality of reward, uh, he was essentially advancing unknowingly a communistic argument. That's right. And that is deadly. It does not That's work. Right.
1: Now, I think related to this, a question that I think of sometimes. I have, my wife is Canadian, and I have in-laws in Canada, and I'm struck by the difference between the notion of rights of individuals and groups, that in Canada you don't have things like the Bill of Rights, but you do have a lot of recent activity to try to establish the rights of groups of people, ethnic groups, uh, tribal groups. Uh, language groups, and and so forth. Uh, and these seem to go in much different directions. Mm-hmm. That I personally think that in a sense we were fortunate that in the U.S., uh, given our history, that it was the individual who was defined as the uh, appropriate recipient of of rights and the holder of rights, rather than,
0: rather than a group. But that's changing. We now have group rights in this country. We have... Uh, well, affirmative action, uh, causes But there them. are
1: challenges to it. I mean, well, affirmative action doesn't yeah. stick that well in this country, I think, as compared well, to...
0: Well, people, people resent it. But there are homosexual rights, there are disabled rights. Um, yeah. I mean, and there's no limit to it. Uh, for example, I, I,
1: I agree that there are a lot of claims for these rights yeah. and a lot of actions, like affirmative action, taking place. And yet, I think that... Ultimately, there will be changes in this because they come up against the notion of individual rights.
0: You're quite right. And in fact, um, the Gallup poll, which I remember reading in the 70s, it's about 10 years after the enactment of affirmative action, showed that the majority of Americans, I think by a margin of 7 to 1, opposed affirmative action, and that the blacks and the Hispanics, for whose benefit it was done, opposed it by a margin of 2 to 1. Yes. So, it's really a very undemocratic measure. That's right. Uh, it's rammed down people's throats, even, even the people who are, are supposed to benefit from it most.
1: Well, one hopes that to the extent that's the case, perhaps polls could be taken and read on that as well as mm-hmm. everything else, that there might be a difference. But you
0: see, that. Uh, you see you've seen what happened in uh, California and Texas when. Right the uh, majority of people voted solidly against uh, affirmative action education. And then the proponents of it go to court, and they delay it, and so on, and they find out various ways of getting around it. They are very determined. I mean, the people who are in favor of these entitlements and these rights are far more determined and active than people are opposed to them. That's right. That's their life's vocation.
1: <laughs> well, and that kind of theme runs through a lot of... Uh... Of uh, politics, political economy, and yeah. so forth. Namely, what I'm referring to is the asymmetry between groups of people who would feel they have something to gain by a certain action and those who would lose. And to the extent yeah. that the gains are concentrated yeah, right. on a the few, Quite then they're right. yeah. better able
0: to, to that's organize. Right. Whereas the losses uh, are distributed very widely. Right. Yeah, that's right.
1: Now, one thing that I've often pondered is the difference between the view that economists generally have and some of my colleagues in the humanities and others have. And that has to do, I think has a bearing on, on individual property rights, has to do with the notion of the invisible hand and Adam Smith. The notion that somehow, by, even with lack of central guidance and command, things may work out, in this case, the market outcomes, may work out that are superior to what you would get if you had someone calling the shops from on high. I think this is a very difficult concept for many people to, to embrace. And yet, without that, uh, I think we're led to a situation where, if we think certain outcomes are desirable, mm-hmm. we move naturally to calling upon the state to enforce directly those outcomes and to rearrange what people can do in their property rights to bring that about. What we lose sight of is the effect yeah. that has on incentives. Well, I
0: don't think it's a question of either or. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I certainly basically believe in the invisible hand. I believe that if you allow the market to, to work, it will work. But there are obviously occasions when the public, the state, has to interfere or intervene. Even Frederick Hayek, who was great, Uh, enemy of state interference, argued that uh, the state ought to help the poor, uh, provide them with food and housing shelter and clothing and so on. So even he was not against it. And um, I I, I think in all these cases, it's not a question of either or. Uh, Property rights, individual property rights versus government uh, interests in the public as a whole, the balance of some kind can be struck. Basically, I would say, I would look out for the interests of the individual and I would protect the market. But when, for some reason, it doesn't work satisfactorily, then I think the government can interfere. Yes. Uh, So that's...
1: I think. Let me return for a moment to some of the environmental issues. Mm -hmm. I think they they throw out good examples. Uh, For example, in in some of the fishing industries, in, in British Columbia there's a concern about the salmon fisheries. Uh, You want to protect the salmon, so you uh, create a set of regulations that will do so. Well, some of these regulations had to do with the number of days of the year you could fish, uh, the size of the boats you could use, and so forth, and none of them seemed to work very well. Mm -hmm. Now, what does work better is assigning individual fishermen rights to the fish. Mm that once you get the property rights established, yeah. then they will fish when it's appropriate to do so. They won't haul all the fish in at one time, which means most of them spoiled or can't be sold freshly on the
0: market. That's great. I cite in my book a very interesting example, which I learned, of um, Maine lobster men yes. who, uh, in order not to overfish the lobster, sign agreement among themselves and establish a kind of... Uh, rule of law without any written documents, and uh, they preserve the lobster. Uh, privatization, from this point of view, always works. Uh, and by and large, yes, I'll be in favor of minimal inf- interference by the, by the state, because the people who have a vested interest know bet- better than the government.
1: That's right, they, uh, uh, they do. I can tell the story very, very briefly. One of my brothers-in-law is a lumberman uh, in Canada, in British Columbia, and sells cedar shakes. And they had, he heard a couple years ago, the big ice storm in in Kansas. And before the day was out, he was ordering trucks to cross the border with shingles to uh, repair the damage. And two weeks or three weeks later, a newly created government employee came in and sat on the edge of his desk and said, "Uh, gee, boys, here I have a newspaper clipping that shows there was an ice storm. In Kansas, have you thought maybe that there's something you could do there? And my brother-in-law kicked him out of the office. (laughs) Who has a vested interest? Who has more of a vested interest? I'm not sure that we end up disagreeing very much, and I'm not sure that we should. I don't think we disagree (laughs) at all. (laughs) uh,
0: That's that's uh, helpful. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's helpful. So I guess we can uh, uh, bring this to a close. It's been very pleasant chatting with you, and I think your book... Not only will do well, but deserves to do well Take in, it in so the marketplace. Thank
0: you so much. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.